0: We're podcasting from the Edwin Cardinal O'Brien Pastoral Center in Washington, D.C., home base for the Archdiocese for the Military Services. I'm Public Affairs Officer Taylor Henry. Today it's my great honor to be talking to Father Colonel Eric Albertson of the U.S. Army. Father Albertson, welcome. Great to be with you today, Taylor. Right. And the Catholic priests who've served in the military have established a great tradition of being out there among the, the troops Uh, even in combat zones, and you are certainly a living example of that. Uh, You were injured in battle uh, in Iraq in 2004. You sustained a concussion. That's correct.
1: Can you tell, tell me about that? How did that happen? Well, one of the challenges on the battlefield as a chaplain is to try to mitigate risk. So we don't do anybody any good if we're too forward. And as non-combatants, we have to make sure that we're located where security can be provided. The chaplain is uh, responsible for providing pastoral care, though, in some of these areas where you have to take some risk to get out to them. So uh, standard way that they operate is you have a forward operating base, and then you'll have some satellite bases surrounding the various uh, area. With uh, facilitate security and movement between different locations. So we were on our way to, oddly enough, an outpost called Combat Outpost. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, they had been hit uh, quite routinely. And uh, by the time we were done, that particular battalion had sustained uh, the greatest number of casualties of anybody in the brigade. There was a a mission that was going on that was going to... uh, require greater uh, concentration on that part of the battle space. So the brigade commander directed that I go out and uh, be prepared to provide Catholic coverage and some additional support to the unit ministry team, the chaplain and uh, chaplain assistant that were assigned there. So uh, we were en route, and uh, while we were en route, we were ambushed. It was a combination of small arms fire and some um, multiple IEDs and— Uh, Three of them went off. The third one hit our vehicle. Um, It knocked me out temporarily. Uh, I woke up when the vehicle landed. It apparently had gone up on two wheels and then came back down. And uh, that's when it it jolted me awake. Uh, But, you know, your hearing is lost, and you're trying to make sense of what happened. And we were able to push back into the uh, uh, compound and uh, the vehicle the tires had been blown out, and there had been some damage to the rear end of the vehicle, but it was still drivable and uh so we we got into the compound. It turns out there really were no other injuries, so I was in the right rear of the vehicle that's where the explosion hit and when we got in i uh I tried to shake it off um, you know we're checking on all the troops, make sure everybody's good. I'll hook up with the unit ministry team there but i i uh just experienced some dizziness and uh, some additional back pain. My hearing wasn't coming back right away. And then some nausea, you know, you're just not feeling well. So they got me checked out and it was a concussion. And really back then the treatment was just to, you know, lie down and rest out up for about 24 hours. By then my hearing had returned. And, uh, and then we just kept pressing on throughout the battle space. I was just grateful that it wasn't, uh, greater injury, Uh, we found out later that they had um, uh, implanted the IED incorrectly, and that was why uh, the vehicle didn't sustain a greater uh, degree of uh, catastrophic impact.
0: And this took place in Iraq, where exactly?
1: Uh, We were in the Anbar province, uh, and this was outside the city of Ramadi, so that would have been uh, west of Fallujah, which was west of Baghdad.
0: And this was back in 2004 when the battle was going full of guns.
1: Yes, it was. Uh, uh, the insurgency was picking up. We, uh, we stepped into an area where we just, we just didn't realize how intense it was. Uh, the insurgency had moved out of Fallujah and pushed west into Ambar and then up into Ramadi. And uh, it was uh, before the IED technology had really developed Uh, to the degree that it became the weapon of choice for the enemy. But uh, back then there were still a lot of small arms engagements, so there was some uh, conventional uh, fighting that was going on. So we had a lot of guys that were wounded from small arms fire as well as the indirect fire and the IEDs.
0: And the IED, what we commonly refer to as a
1: roadside bomb. A roadside bomb. They call it a improvised explosive device and it just became the weapon of choice for the enemy. You know, as the war progressed, that was the, the main source of casualties. And you were in a vehicle. Was it an armored vehicle? Well, it had some armor. Uh, early on, we didn't have the armored vehicles. So, um, we kind of did our own armor and tried to beef it up as much as we can. So, um, uh, of course, the IDs weren't as big as they were towards the end of the war. They started using larger ordnance. But the, uh, uh, the armored vehicles would come in a little bit later, and then ultimately they would move away from the Humvee altogether and started using the uh, MRAP, which was a, a more successful platform regarding the uh, survivability Tell me about the vehicle you were in. Was it a tank like vehicle or a Jeep like vehicle? It's like a Jeep like vehicle. The the Jeeps well, like kind of went away years ago and then they went to the Humvee. So that was the standard uh, means of transportation. We had some trucks, some what they called deuce and a halfs, which were the trucks that were popular even during World War II and Korea and Vietnam. Uh, then they came out with a larger uh, truck system. But the uh, Back then, it was primarily, it was the Humvees. And if you could, as best you can,
0: dissect this experience for those who are listening to this. Um, what, is, what, what is your first awareness that you've been attacked by an IED when it's happening?
1: Well, I, we heard the first, there were two explosions before ours. One, we, I saw the first one, it was uh, just uh, in front of the lead vehicle and then um
0: so you knew you were in a minefield at that
1: point right another one went off i wasn't sure where it was it sounded like it was behind us and i'm sure and, the adrenaline starts rushing right and so then i think the gunner was returning fire but it happened very quickly
0: and you said you drew arms fire small arms fire at the same time
1: yes now i, I that i only found out later but they said that the the gunner was returning fire when we were hit
0: was anyone else with you Uh, wounded or injured
1: no i was uh, only one and uh it was just a you know uh that's why i kind of was trying to shake it off and um but it was just where the the explosion occurred um you know it just seemed to impact me more than anybody else
0: and you have uh, that purple heart ribbon that you're wearing to show for it
1: yes they they if you get wounded, and even with concussions, they'll grant a Purple Heart. Well, I know I speak for lots of folks out
0: there listening to this uh, to say thank you for your sacrifice and thank you for your service. Um, putting your life on the line like that is a, is a true act of valor and, and uh, for which uh, the nation stands in great appreciation, and I just want to express that here today. Um, as a chaplain in theater, uh, what was it like counseling the young men and women as they went into battle and came back? Did you experience that they were closer to God from the experience of having their lives on the line like that, like like they are during war?
1: You know there it, this is probably true throughout history, but there's just a spectrum. Um, some guys looked at it like a job and uh, were marginally affected by combat. Others were quite traumatized. I think everybody was traumatized, at least some. But um, then there were uh, others who um, seemed to do very well in that environment, where they may not have done very well in the rear environment, back in garrison, you know, we get deployed and suddenly they start rising to the occasion and becoming very good soldiers. So it was, uh, it was interesting. Now, what, what usually brought us into their, uh, to their area, we used to call it making rounds. So, you know, we just kind of, even today at Central Command, we call it ministry by roaming around. You know, so we'll just kind of walk around and see how everybody's doing. And uh, if we knew that one of the companies had had a, a rough day, maybe they had some casualties or something, we made it a point to get down to see him uh, that evening or within 24 hours. And because we had uh, relationships established with a lot of these soldiers, um, you know, prior to the deployment and so forth, by training with them and getting to know them uh, back when we were in garrison together, um, the chaplain's... We're, we're fairly welcomed. You know, sometimes they were a little bit antsy or whatever, but for the most part, they, they always welcomed us. And and then we just start talking with fellas, and sometimes they would talk, sometimes they wouldn't, but they always appreciated us being there. We routinely offered a prayer, and uh, sometimes we'd have one of the uh, sergeants say, hey, you really need to talk to you know Private Jones or whatever. He was really rattled today. You know, either one of his friends got killed or one of his friends was wounded or... He had a close call, and he's kind of just a little bit unnerved by it all, which anyone would be. So, you know, we maybe one of us or both of us swing by and see him. And a lot of times, all you had to do was just say, "You know, how you doing?" And then you just sat back, and they would do the talking. So, um, I, but it was a very interesting pastoral care environment because. The work of the soldiers is, you know, if we're trying to bring security to a specific area and we expect to make what they call contact with the enemy, this means they're going to be involved with some shooting and the taking of human life. So um, early on in the fight, there were some interesting counseling sessions where, you know, the guys were talking about that especially if somebody had killed someone for the first time and, you know, they're processing it or, you know, in the course of a day, they killed several people. But, you know, it's the nature of the fight. Um, So you kind of help them process that. And, uh, you know, uh, a, a common theme was like, you know, the, there was an element of remorse that, You know, why did it have to come to this? You know, that was probably somebody's relative, brother, father, you know. But, you know, there's also the acute awareness that, you know, this is what it means to be a soldier. And if you don't respond accordingly, they will. I'm sure police officers go through uh, similar processing if they're engaged with a a shootout. And I, I... I suspect police chaplains have similar counselings. But it's a very unique counseling arena because, you know, in the typical pastoral setting, you're not going to encounter that. So, helping them to understand, for example, the difference between killing and murder. Now, I always do this before we roll out because in our country, we tend to mix up those two terms. So, we'll say, let's say a TV show is going to talk about so-and-so, the serial killer. He's not really a serial killer. He's a serial murderer. And so, just a very simple moral analysis. You know, killing is the justified taking of guilty life. Murder would be the unjustified taking of innocent life. So, um, but helping them to understand that gives them a certain sense of purpose and refinement of their actions morally on the battlefield. You know, and then even to take it a step further, you know, that the Hebrew word is, and the commandment is thou shalt not murder. It isn't thou shalt not kill. So, you know, there can be justifications for taking human life, the battlefield being one of them, a police officer in the line of duty being another. Um, You know, I know it's controversial, but maybe somebody breaks into somebody's home, a family man defending his family. So no one would argue that in those circumstances um, but you know if somebody says this isn't for me well then we have conscientious objection I- i've helped people get out of the army because over time they realized no matter what the circumstances were they would not be able to take a human life which is admirable okay but again it just shows at least a relative incompatibility with the military if they're going to be in the forward areas i'm sure you know it'd be same with a police officer So, we wouldn't put that person out on the street. That person would be part of the support component for the police department where they wouldn't have to be involved with making that type of choice.
0: Speaking of incompatibility, do you ever encounter people, either in the military or in the civilian world, who raise the question what is a man of God, a priest of Jesus Christ, whose message was peace? Doing in a military setting where the objective
1: is warfare and killing the enemy. Right, we get that. Sometimes people wonder. But I always remind them, first of all, that the chaplain is not a combatant. Okay, so we're not the ones involved with the killing or the blowing up of things. You know, I can still remember when I was in the basic course, we had a, a senior commandant for the schoolhouse reminded us that, you know, the people we will minister to Their job is to blow things up, seize territory, and kill the enemy if necessary. You know, so, um, uh, you know, it's just a very unique pastoral environment. But um, the the way I've always tackled it is um, we pray for peace. Everybody prays for peace. In fact, I would say that the people that love peace the most are the soldiers Because they've seen what an absence of peace looks like up close and personal. Their own engagement and combat operations, but also the atrocities that have been committed by the enemy. And the people that have to live under the constant threat of those atrocities. And how unnerving and uncomfortable it is where you just don't know. If you go to the marketplace, somebody's going to blow up the marketplace and kill members of your family. I should say, more accurately, murder members of your family. In some twisted agenda, that this is the right thing to do. But, um, you know, we live in a world that, that has always had warfare. I think it's that famous quote, quote of Plato only the dead have seen the end of war. So, um, you know, this is very difficult work, very demanding, very unusual, very taxing, extremely stressful, exhausting. And, If you are not there for them, then in a sense, isn't that discrimination that we're going to provide pastoral care to everybody except people that are involved with uh, this particular line of work. So uh, if anything, uh, everyone is in need of pastoral care and evangelization and the sacraments and so forth. But wouldn't we think that the people involved with this particular type of work would need it more than anyone? Would not they need grace, the sacraments, moral comprehension, theological analysis that uh, justifies what they're doing and helps them to think clearly on the battle space so that they can make the best decisions, you know, with regards to sadly the tragic decision to have to take enemy life, but necessarily so in order to preserve our own troops' lives or our own territory or equipment? So if anything that's the environment you want to insert a spiritual presence that contributes to the overall analysis of why we're doing what we're doing and what's the best way to accomplish the mission did you see any
0: big conversions on the battlefield
1: I did and in all humility I saw the opposite where people you know distance themselves from God bitter not able to grasp you know the, the tragedy of the battlefield sometimes was just too much for them but i did see others that uh, uh drew closer to god more often than than not that is what i saw um but then there was also some complacency some people were neither moved or in one way or the other so i still remember uh seeing pictures of chaplains celebrating mass, for example, you know, uh, and there would be these enormous numbers of of soldiers in attendance, you know, or sailors or airmen, depending on where it was. So I thought that, you know, here we are downrange, we're in combat, you know, my numbers were about what they were in garrison. <laughs> so uh, there wasn't necessarily a greater attendance at mass. But this is where the role of the chaplain is, is unique and powerful. As I mentioned, we do our rounds. And when I went around, I always brought the Blessed Sacrament with me. Because there were times when our Catholic soldiers genuinely didn't have an opportunity to go to Mass. They were out on mission, or they came back, they were resetting, or they were just so tired. They just said, I, I just went to sleep. So I always carried the Blessed Sacrament with me. And I, many of them I knew were Catholic. I'd say, hey, you, you know, we didn't see you at Mass. Would you like to receive Holy Communion? Every time oh, yes, Father, uh, yes, that would be great. So, and even um, on the Protestant side of the house, when uh, my Protestant chaplain friends would reach out, hey, I didn't see you at service, but would you guys be comfortable with a prayer? The prayers were always welcomed. They were always welcomed. Uh, a lot of times we would say prayers for people before they push out on mission, you know, pray for the angels to watch over them, keep them space, safe, uh, especially uh, convoys, they you know, we, we would be there for the convoy brief. And, uh, it was an expected thing. The chaplain was going to say a prayer for them at the very end. They cover everything. And then they wrap up and say, chaplain is going to lead us in a prayer. And and it was never impositional. If you'd like to leave and go to your vehicles, no issue. You know, we didn't force anybody into prayer or anything like that. But I will tell you every time we offered the prayer, nobody left. They always stuck around.
0: <laughs> so in the last few minutes, we've got left father. Uh, so tell me about your personal story. How did you come to find your vocation first as a priest and then as a chaplain?
1: Well, uh, I'll try to give you the shotgun version. Uh, it's a fascinating story. I grew up Catholic. My mom was very devout and made sure we went to Mass every Sunday. My father was baptized Catholic, but he had left the church, and my grandmother did not raise him in the faith. So he never received the sacraments outside of baptism. And so growing up, we all went to church, but my dad didn't. So that kind of left an impression on me. I never went to Catholic schools, CCD, for 11 years. But it was the post-council years, so my foundational catechism was kind of weak. Uh, There was an emphasis on the social mission of the church, which did leave an impression on me. uh, But I didn't learn some of the fundamentals. Anyway, uh, when I got to college, I stopped going to church, which, as we all know, that's not an unusual phenomenon. <laughs> so, uh, true to form, I, I didn't go to church, and, but, but my best friends were Catholic, and they just could not believe that I wasn't going to church on Sunday. So, you know, no matter what craziness they got into during the week, by golly, they got up on Sunday morning and went to church. And they were stunned that I didn't. But for two and a half years, I didn't. And they would like pour water on me and jump all over my bed, play loud music. I mean, they just made it miserable for me. But I just was stubborn and didn't go. Till finally, uh, they had a great strategy. You want to marry a good Catholic girl, don't you? (laughs) So I said, well, yeah. And they're saying, well, you're not going to meet her. Unless you go to church. Oh, and by the way, you just can't come once because a good Catholic girl wants to marry a good Catholic guy. So I said, okay, you win. So I started going to church. So I went to church with them uh, one weekend. Then the second weekend that I went, it was vocation Sunday, unbeknownst to me. And the priest gave a very short sermon. And he said, you know, if God's calling you to the priesthood or to be a religious, a brother, a sister, a monk, or a nun. Uh, What you need to do is say a prayer after you receive Holy Communion and just ask him, Lord, if you're asking me to do this, just let me know. And he'll let you know. God bless you now. And he sat down. I was like, wow, we're going to get out early tonight. I still remember it was the Vigil Mass. And uh, so I did what he asked me to do. Lord, if you want me to be a priest or a brother or a monk, just uh, let me know. Amen. And I had a St. Paul experience. It was just goofy. I couldn't shake the thought, and I started laughing to myself. I thought it was hilarious, me a priest, ha, ha, ha. But it was almost like a Chinese drip torture, you know, uh, the priesthood, the priesthood, the priesthood, the priesthood. It was like this relentless thought that I just couldn't shake. So it was keeping me up at night. It was the first thing on my mind in the morning when I would wake up. It was on my mind all day long. I was so troubled by it that after about a week and a half, I went down to the church there. This was at West Virginia University and they had a Newman Center and uh, uh, the Paulus fathers were assigned to, the ch- to provide uh, a priest there. And I, know, I remember his name was Father Kenny and I go, Father Kenny, I think I've been hypnotized. <laughs> so, uh, and we talked about it and it was a clever strategy because I already, sadly, Father Kenny, I thought gave boring sermon. So I was like, this is why I didn't go. But it was the guest priest that came in and gave that sermon and it was so short, I listened up. And before I had a chance to say he's boring, the sermon was over. And so Father Kenny sat me down and said, well, you know, I was there. When he gave that sermon, do you remember what the prayer was? And I said, yeah. And he goes, it was what? Well, Lord, if you want me to do this, let me know. He says, do you think maybe God is trying to let you know? And I was like, yeah, he might be, but I don't want to do that. You know, I've got plans. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, wise counsel. He said, we have daily mass here. If you come to daily mass, I think you'll be able to figure this out. So I started coming to daily Mass, but the more I prayed about it, the stronger it got. And uh, the long and short of it is, after about a few months and some spiritual direction, uh, I finally bit the bullet and said, you know, uh, I'll look into it. He gave me some additional wise counsel. He said, God does not call every man to the seminary to be a priest, but he does call them to the seminary. And then he went on to say that you cannot complete the discernment to the priesthood on the outside. You need a formative environment, a structured environment with regular spiritual direction and theological formation for the discernment process to complete itself. And I'm a firm believer of that. And it worked for me. So, and he said, if God's calling you, the doors will also open. The doors opened. Uh, I met with Arlington. uh, Father uh, Bob Avella was my vocations director, gave me wise counsel. And I made through the interview process and, uh, Graduated West Virginia and entered the pre-theology program at Mount St. Mary's for the Diocese of Arlington, Virginia the following year. And uh, then uh, while I was in the seminary, because my father was military and I, I really enjoyed the military and was planning on going into the military. Um, but uh, I stayed away from the recruiters because I, I just didn't know if that's what God wanted me to do. But about after a year of ordination, uh, I felt the calling to the, to the chaplaincy as powerfully as I felt the calling to the, uh, to the priesthood. And since I'd been down that road of discernment before, it was pretty easy to figure it out. Uh, Bishop Keating at the time was very reluctant to release me. So I ended up petitioning for six years in a row. But on year seven, he, uh, he released me.
0: So you were a parish priest for seven years before. Seven years. You entered the uh, the service. Interesting. Well, Father er- Eric Albertson, uh, thank you so much for talking to me today. Oh, it's uh, been a joy, Taylor. Thank you. And uh, once again, thank you, sir, for your service and um, all that you do for our men and women in uniform. And uh, hopefully, a year or two from now. Uh, Sit down and do this again. We'll have more experiences
1: to talk about. I look forward to it. Thank you. God bless.